can we take a chunk of fresh tissue and develop a system that at the press of a button can produce a pathology quality image? So I know that that sounds like a, a broad goal and like a pie in the sky goal. And we've certainly gotten more specific as the time has gone on. But the initial goal was to build a system that could automate a lot of the laborious elements that are, you know, currently we see in the standard of care of current pathology. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. The basic process of preparing a pathology slide has remained pretty much the same for over 100 years. And this includes fixation, tissue processing, cutting, and then staining. But what if there was a way to skip all of that and go directly from tissue biopsy to pathology image? My guest today is David Tolman, one of the co-founders of Instapath. They have created a system that uses optical sectioning microscopy and an innovative virtual staining method, and we'll talk about some of the applications of this process. All right, here's David Tolman. Coming out of college, so you went to Ohio State. Yes. And uh, then you started working in, you, you were working in clinical trials. And That's I want to talk about this for a minute. All right, what, what type of trials were you working in? Well, it's something I certainly stumbled into um, when I was when I was finishing up my undergrad work at Ohio State. I didn't really have a job lined up. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I was I had gone and I had done my college as like a pre med, thinking I was going to med school. And then by the time I was finishing up college, I wasn't getting into med school, um, and deservedly so. And so I had this while I was, while I was an undergrad, I had a job, um, working in the operating room as just like a, just like a assistant technician. And so my job was to turn over the rooms, to transport the patients, to help the surgeons and, and the nurses, you know, set up the patients in, in the correct positions for the surgeries to plug in all the equipment, get all, get all the equipment that's needed for any given procedure. And so through that, I learned a lot about just how, like, how the workflow of the perioperative world. And because of that job, I got in, in touch with a um, with a, a clinical researcher at Ohio State who was an anesthesiologist. And so I joined the anesthesiology clinical research team and I had no idea what that was. I had no idea. I thought like when they told me, when they told me research, I thought it was going to be, you know, like a laboratory with pipettes and, you know, chemicals and doing all that stuff. And so on my first day, um, it's clinical research. They sent me to like literally a basement with paper everywhere. And I just, I didn't know that that clinical trials was, was a lot of paperwork. Of course, there was the, the patient stuff too, that, you know, the, the patient stuff and the interaction with the patients and doing all the follow-ups, but I didn't know what I was getting myself into. And I was Department of Anesthesiology. And so anesthesiology is kind of the gateway to surgery. So the trials that we did were, it was very, very, uh, it was very ranging. It was phase one through four pharmaceutical trials. It was post-marketing studies um, for all sorts of drugs that are used in the perioperative arena. It was new devices, mostly specific to um, like anesthesia, vitals, monitoring, um, we did some glucose monitoring at the time. We did some some neurosurgery stuff, some brain monitoring at the time. So 
I got, it was, it was just a terrific opportunity for me to get exposed to all areas of medicine. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. That was, that sounds like that was some really good exposure and probably influenced uh, your kind of later career, I think. Now, all right. From there, you go on to earn a PhD in bioinnovation sure. from Tulane. So first of all, what is bioinnovation? What does that mean? Well, when I joined, when I started the program, uh, no one knew what it mean. It was a brand new program at the time. Uh, at the time, okay. I was at the time, it was actually the only program in the world, at least to my knowledge, that offered a PhD in bioinnovation. And how we how we defined it is, bioinnovation PhD is a is a PhD with a science heavy translational science project. So whatever project you're working on has to be translational. It can't just be like studying all of the fundamentals of like one specific protein, like many traditional PhDs are. It has to be something that ultimately could have legs to be like a commercial viable product. And then the second criteria was we were encouraged to do activities related to the business of biotechnology. Now they hoped that we could do something that was related to um, the specific, you know, the, the work that we were doing in our respective laboratories. But in general, um, we were encouraged to actually take time away from the lab and explore business opportunities in biotechnology. So I got to do all sorts of cool things on top of the the, the rigorous scientific PhD. I got to go out and do business plan competitions. I got to have an internship as a business development intern for an incubator working with all sorts of different startups, learning about financial models, learning about fundraising, learning about all of the little elements that ultimately go into running a startup company. Okay. So it seems like that would have, that, that came in handy a little bit later then, right? <laughs> yeah. I was really fortunate um, that I joined a team that we had a great we had a great translational project and the team was motivated to, to commercialize what we were doing. And so I had the, um, you know, I, I had the, the honor of working with this team on the actual engineering of the, the device that my, uh, my startup Instapath is now built around. And it kind of went hand in hand that I got to, you know, actually work on the device while, exploring business opportunities for what, what we were building. Okay. And what you were building, I mean, you were working in microscopy and that's kind of what led into Instapath, right? Yes, that's correct. So when I, when I started the PhD program at Tulane, I decided to join Quincy Brown's lab and Quincy Brown is a, at heart, he is, he's a biomedical engineer who focuses on biomedical optics and microscopy. And so when I joined his lab, I actually did not, I don't have an, I don't have a true engineering background. I actually, I went, my undergrad was in, was in biology. And so I, but I brought something unique to the team. I brought my knowledge of clinical trials and how to take a new device or take a new drug and, you know, do the studies to validate it in patients. And so it was just a good fit for me on the team because they needed someone that could help translate this and I needed to shore up my engineering skills. And so they taught me the engineering elements of microscopy and I helped them out with just the initial clinical validation of what we were building. 
And that ultimately led to Instapath. Instapath was founded in 2017. Yep. Now, what was kind of the original goal uh, of the company? Well, the original goal of the company is not too far from what we're from what we're doing today. Um, the original goal of the company was to it was to automate pathology. Essentially, was to without fixing tissue, without cutting tissue, can we take a chunk of fresh tissue? and develop a system that at the press of a button can produce a pathology quality image. So I know that that sounds like a a broad goal and like a pie in the sky goal. And we've certainly gotten more specific as the time has gone on, but the initial goal was to build a system that could automate a lot of the laborious elements that are, you know, currently we see in the standard of care of current pathology. The system that you built then you called it Lucy. Mm-hmm. And before we get into what this is, I, I kind of want to know, how did you come up with this name? <laughs> well, I can tell you that um, when we, when we, when we started the company, it was, it was, it was founded by scientists. So none of us have a marketing background. So everything was kind of all the traditional marketing tactics. We didn't know any of that. So a lot of this was made up. We came up with the name. We, we had a whiteboard. And we just started just writing down like all sorts of combinations of words that came to mind. Our, our idea was the heart of what we do is manipulation of light. So we wanted, um, we wanted the product, we wanted the company, we wanted the product to be related. You know, we wanted whatever we were going to build the, the, what we named it related, somewhat related to light, to pathology, to imply speed. And so we had this huge whiteboard of, I think I still have the picture on my phone, but it was hundreds of ideas. And after debating back and forth with those hundreds of ideas, we still didn't have really anything that we liked. And so we decided, let's let's name our product after, let's give it like a human name. This is our, we, we kind of, this is as, as weird tech startup people, we consider what we're building kind of our baby. So, so we came up with, so we wanted to, to put a human name on what we were building. And we arrived at Lucy because loose is, is a root word in Latin implying light. And we just, Uh Lucy sounds like a beautiful name. That's got, you know, somewhat relation to light puts a little bit of a human element on it. And we went with it. I like it. That, that's a good story. <laughs> All right. Now, the, so the Lucy system uses optical scanning microscopy. Mm-hmm. And, all right. Can we talk about what this is and why it mm-hmm. works in this context? Yeah, absolutely. So optical sectioning microscopy is you can use a variety of methods of, of sub methods of optical sectioning microscopy to take a thick sample, so a thick piece of tissue in this case, and instead of physically cutting it, we use the properties of light um, to virtually cut it. So imagine in in the real world pathology scenario, um, if you want to cut a five micron thin slice of tissue and put it on a slide, you're going to put that chunk of tissue, um, you're going to embed it in something, you're going to put it on a microtome, 
and you're going to turn the wheel and you're going to make a thin, you're going to produce a thin section that you're going to put on a slide. And so we're doing the same thing. It's just virtual. How it technically works, um, it, we use a technique called structured illumination microscopy, um, which is one of those subsets of optical sectioning microscopy. We actually did not invent structured illumination microscopy. It was a technique that was invented in the late 90s for all sorts of uh, high-resolution imaging for research applications. But what we did um, is we optimized the structural illumination system, and we were the first to do it for image for clinical imaging of, of, of pathology specimens. And what it is at, at, at its heart is we shine light onto a sample. We use various patterns. They can be they can be just like they can be bars, like like a bar of light a bar that's blacked out, a bar of light, a bar that's blacked out. Um, they can be sine waves. Um, they can be concentric circles. can be all sorts of different patterns. And we use phase shifting um, to perform the math um, that's required to do the optical sectioning. So I know that that sounds really technical, um, but what it is is it's, it's, it's manipulating light and using some math to make a thick image appear thin. Okay, that makes sense. Now, what, like, what size of tissue are we talking about for for this? It's like biopsy size, right? Well, that commercially, yes. Um, but I think going okay. going back to your early question, earlier question, I'm not sure I answered it very well. We actually started this project before Instapath was even born. Um, we started off imaging significantly larger tissues, and our idea with like the initial development of this was, can we scan? the entire circumferences of excised organs. And we started off with prostate. Um, so we did this at Tulane University where the technology was born and where I, where I did my, my PhD. We actually did a clinical study where a radical prostatectomy occurred. We got the, before the, um, before the prostate got processed for its standard pathology, you know, standard of care, we took it, and we did our staining process on it, and we imaged as much of the circumference of that prostate as we could, with the application being, can we do a complete circumferential imaging to check for margin status? And we were able to do that in about, depending on the size, in about 20 to 30 minutes of an entire organ, which is pretty cool. But when we started Instapath, we learned that commercially it was going to be challenging to, to truly get that technique adopted into clinical practice. So we, we pivoted to focusing more on smaller tissues, specifically where we're mostly focused on biopsy and smaller chunks now. Okay. I see. That makes sense. Now I want to talk about the, it's like an innovative staining method that you use with the Lucy system and it's called DNE. Mm -hmm. uh, so the D instead of the hematoxyl, it's, I don't know how you say it, is a DRAC, DRAC, DRAC five, five mm -hmm. DRAC five and Eosin, right. so DNE. Sure. And so, I know you've co-authored several papers on this. What, what, what is DNE? What, how does this process work? Right. So, so DNE, it stands for, for DRAC five and Eosin. DRAC five is a, it's a proprietary stain. Um, it's a nuclear stain, and it is illuminated by a red wavelength fluorescence. 
And eosin, everyone's familiar with eosin. Eosin, it turns out, is also fluorescent. And okay. it can be illuminated by either a blue wavelength or a green wavelength. And it's that's important because when when we when we set off to as as we got further down the road with um, what we now call Lucy, we we learned that for adoption of this technology, it was going to be really important to produce an image that appears like the standard H and E that pathologists are using are using to diagnose. But before we before we use the DNA method. Um, we were using a single single channel fluorescent stain called acronin orange, which is very very common in research, and we were producing these black and white images. And actually, if you look at our earliest publications, all the images are black and white. And when we shopped that around to our pathology collaborators, they said, "You know, this is great, but it requires a lot of time. It requires a lot of." time for me to like a lot of images for me to get used to, to, to diagnosing, um, in this way. So they asked us, could you come up with a way to produce a colored, something colored that's close to what, what we, what we, um, what we use for, for traditional H&E. And so, yeah. and so that's how we arrived at d So it works because the D DRAC five, which is illuminated, uh, by red fluorescence is a nuclear stain. Um, so it stains the same thing that hematoxylin does and the E is eosin. So it's, you know, it's, it stains the same thing that eosin does because it is eosin and it is illuminated on a different, um, a different channel. So we're able to, when we do our image scans, we're able to, um, simultaneously, simultaneously scan each individual channel. We can color the, the, the nuclear channel blue as you would see in your traditional H&E, and we can color the eosin channel artificially pink, as you would see in your traditional H&E. You put those two on top of each other, and you get pretty close to an H&E-like image. And what I've learned over time working on this is that we started off, it was D&E, but really the interesting thing is it doesn't have to be it doesn't ha- we doesn't necessarily have to be D and E. It can be what it what it has to be is a nuclear stain that fluoresces on one channel and a cytoplasmic stain that fluoresces on a different channel. And if you're able to find those right combinations, um, then you can you can you can do our method. We found that at least in the beginning, D and E worked the best, but now we have a couple different combinations that actually in some cases work better, but they produce similar results. Now, your system has both uh, clinical and research applications. And I want to start with the research applications first, in particular, biobanking. Now, how can the system be used uh, for biobanking? Sure. Um, well, it, it is. It, it has been used. It is being used for biobanking for, for quality control of specimens. So, the, the traditional biobanking workflow is um, you get a ch- you get a chunk of tissue from some excision, and you have to you have to split that tissue in half. So half of it is going to get flash frozen and saved for future use, and the other half, in most places that I've that I've been around, um, is going to go through the formalin fixation process, 
and they're going to make some slides out of that to just do the quality control on it. So to determine the the, the tumor type, the tumor content, essentially pr- you're going to look at that slide to produce a diagnosis for the entire case. And so when I was doing my PhD, I actually found I, I was working closely with our with our biobank um, at Tulane. Um, or, or one of the biobanks um, that, that serves the greater New Orleans area. And I, I was finding that they would give me these samples that would say 50% tumor content. But when I actually went to do the work on it, there was no tumor there. And so I was like, that's what's going on here. And th- that's when I learned about this process that these, these samples they get they get separated and in reality there's a too often there's samples like one there'll be a diagnosis of like a certain percent tumor content but i want to use the frozen sample the other half of the sample that may not have had any tumor on it at all so i observed this discordance and with the system that we were working on i was like well with our technique we can we can give a, a preview of the sample and we can do it all non-destructively. So instead of getting that sample and splitting it in half and going through those processes that I just described, um, we can actually take the sample and we can scan one surface. We can scan, if you think of the sample as like a, as like a cube, we can scan all the different sides to give a, a better idea of like the overall tumor percentage of the sample and we keep the sample intact the entire time. So if we say, if we do the scan and we, and, and the pathologist determines 50% tumor content, well, that's a valuable sample. Let's, let's, let's freeze all of it. And this is going to be a valuable sample for a researcher in the future. Or the other side, we scanned all sides. We found that there was, we didn't find any tumor, 0% tumor. Let's, let's fix it. Let's put it in a block and let's save it as like a normal control. So the way that it's being used is, is as, as a quality control for biobanks as a non-destructive way to quantify how much tumor is in each sample. In some cases, what the tumor type is. And we also provide information about where that tumor exists on the sample. So when researchers want to either buy or obtain a sample from their local local biobank, we can show them an image that says, okay, this is exactly where the tumor is. If you want to isolate your tumor cells for your cell culture or whatever you're doing, we can confidently tell you where it is. That's not something that you can currently do with the current practices in biobanking. Right. Yeah. That, that sounds way more uh, efficient than, than the way things are currently done. Mm -hmm. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, David Tolman. We'll be right back. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Whether you're working hard at the grossing bench, the autopsy table, behind a microscope, or any other area of the medical laboratory, there's one thing that we all need. Comfortable scrubs. The scrubs that I wear come from Dressamed. This is a company in California, and they've been making high-quality scrubs since 1980. 
They have a variety of styles and colors to choose from. As a matter of fact, I just ordered a set of the new soft stretch scrubs. So I'm looking forward to trying those out. You can check out Dressamed by following the link in the show notes. Make sure you sign up for their loyalty program where every order will earn you points towards special offers and discounts. Now back to David Tolman on the People of Pathology podcast. Now, all right, now let's go to then to the clinical applications sure. because this is a, another thing that uh, it, I found this very interesting. So we're talking about like point of care adequacy assessment mm-hmm. uh, and like triaging medical kidney biopsies. Now, mm-hmm. uh, so how, how, how would this work? So the way we use it for biopsies is it's similar to the way that I, I described in biobanking. In, in your current, if you, let's say a patient goes for an ultrasound guided biopsy, and let's say it is that that medical kidney case that you described. That really the, the the only tool that we have available now is touch prep cytology. And so, if you do touch prep cytology and ultra, ultrasound guided biopsy, some cells are going to rub off onto the slide, and you're going to be able to pretty confidently say that there is tumor in this sample. We feel like you you did get your needle in the lesion. And we feel like if we were to forward this sample off for one of the expensive molecular tests that are happening now in this era of precision medicine, um, that we're going to be able to get a viable result from it. And that's how we do it now. And when 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 we started this work and we we started talking to all of the all of our collaborators, they said, "Well, it's not always true. Depending on the case, anywhere from five to thirty percent of the cases." Um, there's actually a discordance between the findings of the of the touch prep evaluation and what was actually in the sample. And so let's say you have that biopsy, you do your touch prep, and all of the cells, all the tumor cells fall off. You say there was tumor, and now there's no tumor cells left in the sample. I send it off to this five thousand dollar genetic panel, and the result comes back as inconclusive, non-diagnostic. I just wasted $5,000. I didn't get the result I want. Now what do I do? So what we do is, so our process aims to avoid all of that. We're just able to take the biopsy intact, apply our quick staining procedure on it, which I just described a couple questions ago. The staining procedure, it's those are that DNA or, or whatever combination we're using. They're they're fast right. they're fast acting they're topical stains they take anywhere from ten to thirty seconds to to penetrate and then we can we can do our imaging process directly on the biopsy so no sloughing off of cells we're actually able to see cellular details we're able to see tissue architecture um, and we're able to better quantify the actual tumor content and nothing was destroyed nothing fell off during this process that biopsy is going to remain intact so we can make a more confident decision about where to send that biopsy. And and medical kidney cases are interesting too because there's no current way before you, unless it's going through the formalin fixation process to do a glomeruli count on a fresh sample. So we're actually able to do that because we're able to show tissue architecture on the intact biopsy. If you're doing a medical kidney procedure, we can give a point of care glomerular count on that sample. Oh wow, mm-hmm. that's th- okay. So we're talking about this is 
it's saving time, it's saving money, mm-hmm. and, and really saving tissue. So, th- so what about like frozen section? Is it could it be applied to that? It absolutely can be applied to frozen section. We actually just finished doing some pilots on that, and there were some. Ch- but it's for, I would say frozen section is more challenging because when when it, when we're doing when we're doing frozen section the orientation of the tissue really, really matters. You know, we're trying to determine, we're, we're likely to, trying to determine some, make some margin call, some determination of, of, of the margin status. And so why frozen section is more challenging is, is because we have to, we have to ensure orientation of the, of the tissue from the time that it's removed from the body potentially excised from a much larger piece of the excision. And when does that get onto our system? And so the way they do it now for frozen sections is they use various inking methods to do that. But you could do that same inking method and then image it with our system, but it's a little different. Um, The inks, the inks don't show up as inks, you know, aren't fluorescent, right? So the inks like don't show up, you know, for our for our image to take, we need some type of fluorescence, and so that's that's a minor challenge that we're working on, and that's probably why well that, that is why um, the frozen section um, application is not one hundred percent ready yet. Yeah, it's more complicated. Yeah, um, something you mentioned earlier that, that you said that the this system doesn't destroy the tissue. Mm-hmm. Now, does that mean that the tissue then it would still be viable for things like molecular genetic testing, flow cytometry, things like that. Absolutely. And we tested this. Um, in fact, one of my colleague, um, dedicated her entire PhD to answering the question of when we do our process, when we do our staining and imaging process, what types of tests can you do after, after our process? And so she tried everything from flow cytometry to, PCR to immunohistochemistry tests to molecular and genetic panels. She didn't do every single test that exists on the planet because that would be uh, quite a lot. But we found, but we, but we found that the answer to the question is pretty much any. In fact, every single pathology test that we've tried after our process has worked the way that it was originally intended to. And in principle, we learned that when we do our imaging procedure, the sample stays intact. And if you want to do one of those downstream tests, you're going to have to formalin fix and cut anyways. So we actually learned that during the formalin fixation process, either the formalin or the xylene, one of those chemicals involves actually removes the stain from the tissue. So it's just essentially erases the staining that we did and you just have your piece of tissue that you would have originally had, had you not done our imaging process. Okay. So it's almost like it never even happened. Basically. Yeah. That's, and in fact, that's, that's typically how our, that's how, that's how all of our validation studies have worked. We essentially borrow the tissue for the period of time that it takes to do our process. And then we just put it right back into the patient's standard of care. Um, workflow. Okay. That's interesting because, you know, doing this imaging, you could determine 
like you said, that the best, you, you know, where the, where the tumor content really is the best. And then you could use that area for your molecular testing, your genetic testing. So in, in theory, that could actually make that even more precise. Yep. Um, absolutely. That's, that is the, the most recent grant that we submitted was on that topic in partnership with one of the, um, with one of the precision medicine companies that offer those types of tests. And so can't divulge all the details of it, but, um, at a high level, it's, um, yeah, that's, that's one of that. That's definitely one of the applications we're looking at is a more efficient way to triage those specimens for all of the, the fancy precision medicine tests that we have available now. Wow. That, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Now we talked about the, the DNA staining. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a possibility to have other kinds of stains, like things that are similar to like the histology special stains or IHC, things like that? Yes, there is. If the stain is fluorescent, then it, then it has a chance to, it has, I'll say it has a chance I'll explain why I just say it has a chance in a second, but if the stain is fluorescent, okay. then it does have a chance to produce a signal on our system. Having said that, the challenge is we want to do our process or our process works best on fresh tissue. So the challenge is the stains that do, that already exist, that may already be fluorescent. How do you get those stains to permeate properly on a fresh sample? When it comes to IHC, when it comes to molecular panels, when it comes to that staining process, how many steps are there after the, after the slide is cut and, you know, to, to get the antibodies to penetrate just that thin piece of tissue. It's pretty complicated, right? There's a lot of steps that, that often, that often go into that. It's not, it's not as simple as dropping, dropping some liquid on top of the slide and watching the colors change. So the challenge there, and this is something that we've worked on is how can you get um, those, those types of stains that even that are already fluorescent, how can you get them to permeate the sample in the way that we want them to, to be able to be useful for a, for one of those special staining applications, one of those IHC applications. It's a pretty big challenge actually. Okay. I see. Yeah. You're kind of really reinventing the whole process to how, how yeah. you're doing those. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's one of two ways it's, you have to either, reinvent the whole, the whole process, like you said, reinvent the whole process, find, find a novel way to get those stains to to permeate, to get stains that are intended to, to stain fixed specimens, to get them to permeate properly into fresh tissue, or you have to come up with new chemical formulations that act as say um, a DRAC5 would. So DRAC5, um, we get away with it because um, it's fast acting and it's topical and we can just drop a little bit of liquid onto the sample and it's going to permeate properly. But I can't say that that's true for all of the other stains that we're talking about out there. So we either have to change the entire process to accommodate the way the stains are currently formulated, or we have to come up with new stain formulations that can do this fast topical staining. Okay, I see. So it, it it sounds like the possibility is there, but it would require a lot more work. Possibility is absolutely there. I've gotten it to work on a couple of special stains, but m- 
much more work is required to to have something like this to be mainstream and and even clinically relevant. All right, I, w- I want to switch gears here now. Sure. You're also a podcaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're the co-host of the Beyond the Scope podcast mm-hmm. from the Digital Pathology Association. Mm-hmm. So let, let's talk about that. How did you get involved in that project? Well, I got asked to to serve on a committee for the for the DPA, and I I, I was excited to join because I was excited to join the committee because. Um, I had dental, I, when I, when I was, when I was younger, when I was just, when I was a PhD student, I had started attending, I, you know, I obviously got really interested in digital pathology and I started to, to attend their conferences and just started to get to know the people and really, really enjoyed them. And so when they asked me to serve on one of their committees, I was absolutely honored to be a part of it. And so I showed up, or I guess I showed up, I called in via zoom or whatever on, on the first meeting um, just to listen in and kind of determine like, what am I actually going to do on this committee? Where can I help out? And they were, one of the topics they were talking about was a podcast. And it's something that they had, they apparently had been talking about for a long time. Um, but they didn't really know how to produce it. You know, there was one individual, um, who's my co-host Giovanni, who he was interested in being the driver of it. He was interested in hosting it. But it seemed to me like they didn't know how to produce a podcast. And so that's where I stepped in. And I was like, all right, I actually know how to produce a podcast because um, even before Beyond the Scope and, and still to this day, my friends and I, just in our free time, just for fun, we have we do a podcast. We are very intense college football fans. I, I love college football. And so we, we just started in, I think, 2015. We just okay. started like our own college football podcast, just us guys talking about college football. And so because of that, I learned how to produce a podcast. I learned how to get the audio right, you know, all the different, you know, all the different platforms that you can use to, to get to get it up and running. And so at that committee meeting, I was like, well, I actually have some experience um, producing a podcast and I, I'm interested in being involved. And I thought that I was just going to help them get started and that was going to be it. You know, this is someone else's thing. Um, and, you know, maybe they want some like production help or whatever. It actually it ended up working out that um, I was going to be I was going to be the co-host and also do the production and. Haven't looked back since second season. We're in our second season now, and uh, I'm having a great time experimenting with all sorts of different formats now. So what's the name of the college football podcast? It's called Targeting. Okay. Yeah. Just because I, I have a friend that I know that's going to be very interested in that. <laughs> Look, tell her about it. I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. Um, I think to, to grow up there, it's like a requirement that you, uh, that you be a, a rabid college football fan. Okay, I see. Now, as far as, far as the Beyond the Show sure. podcast, uh, so so what are what are some? You said you you're enjoying uh, experimenting with different formats. Mm-hmm. Like, what what are some of the things that you most enjoy about about doing the podcast? Well, the number one for me is, I it, it's 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 my way to 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 stay up to date with what's going on in the industry. I have the honor and the pleasure of talking to the most interesting people in our industry. And I actually wanted to ask, yeah. I, I wonder, I, maybe you feel the same way, but 
my favorite part about it is I get to learn something during the conversations. And my hope is that the audience is learning along with me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Even this conversation, especially like I'm learning from you. Yeah. That's, that's one of my favorite things about it too, for sure. And, and, and that's, and, and that's why like when I, when I, when I approach an episode, I like to do a little bit of research, but not too much. I want to do enough research to ask really good questions, but I also don't want to, I don't feel like I need to know the answer to every single question that's being asked. Like I, I truly want to learn at the same time that, you know, everybody else is learning. And I think that that's, to me, that's, that's the, that's the best part. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I agree with that as as well. All right. Now you said that uh, part of the reason for doing the podcast, one of the things you like is uh, keeping up to date mm-hmm. uh, w- with what's happening in the field. Mm-hmm. So I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that as far as the current state of digital pathology. Uh, what, do you, what do you think about where we are and where we, you know, are we where we should be at this point in time? I'm really glad you asked that question because I'm su- surprising to me, but in, in the U.S. at least, I would say the adoption is really low. I, w- yeah. I would say that this is just anecdotally, this is just based on all, all the different people I talk to, but I would say that less than 1% of the cases actually get signed out digitally. When you ask the question, are we where we should be? I'm not sure I know I'm not sure I have a good answer as to where we should be. Like I'm biased because I'm building a digital pathology platform. I'm heavily involved in the Digital Pathology Association. I host a digital pathology podcast. So I think that because all the technologies exist that we should be 100% adopted and fully invested into into diagnosing digital. Uh-huh. <laughs> But I'm also a realistic person, and I know that that's just, that's just not possible. So, I think the way the way that I look at it is is we're still in our infancy, and because I do believe that digital pathology is the future of pathology, um, I just feel a responsibility to educate to help educate on what the potent, on what good use cases are for digital pathology right now. And as a, as a vendor to, to innovate, to, to actually build platforms that are going to be useful in the future. So in its infancy, but a lot of potential, and we've had a lot of really good news in the past year. That's extremely significant when it comes to the, the, the promise of adopting of, of increasing adoption in the U S you're, you're referring to like the approval of using uh, digital pathology for primary diagnosis. Yeah. You know, that hap- that, that system first got approved in 2017, but I think mm-hmm. that's being taken a step further now. Um, at Towards the end of last year, um, we just had the first software approved for um, artificial intelligence assisted identification of prostate structures. So for, for, so so we now can Mm -hmm. use, so now there's an artificial intelligence software that can, that can help diagnose prostate cancer. Another big piece of news that, that, that just came out recently. 
CMS has approved, I think, 14 new CPT codes as it relates um, to digital pathology. Now, we don't yet know all of those details, but the fact that CMS is now recognizing digital pathology as potentially valuable to patient care is a good sign. And I think that if um, once we do get those details, I think that that's going to give confidence to institutions that are thinking about going digital, like, hey, we may actually get reimbursed at a higher rate in the future for for diagnosing this way. And this is now more attractive to us. This helps out the business case that we've been trying to make. Okay, that makes sense. All right. So so we're talking about the future of digital pathology. So now what about the future of Instapath? What, um, what, what are there? Are there future plans, future like expansion or, or something like that? Yeah. So we just, we just finished up a round of pilots um, with Lucy and a, a variety of clinical settings. And we decided that our first clinical application um, is going, is we're delivering a, a low cost system. So a low cost Lucy to, for that biopsy adequacy use case. Before we did the pilots, um, we, we were using our big box that we were primarily testing and validating our big box that you see featured on our website. And that box, that microscope is, it's expensive. And so what we learned during the pilots is in order for this solution to be adopted, there, there is a want for a better workflow, for a digital workflow, for a remote workflow to, to do these tissue adequacy evaluations, but we had to, we had to make the price right. Um, so we, we found a way to lower the cost to build our microscope so that we can just get it, get more units out there and get more tests out there, get more tests done and, and, and validate it further. So the main, like the, what the yet the next year looks like for us is getting our low cost system out there. And, you know, we've got, we're working on three to five institutions right now that are going to be the first adopters of this. Um, and they're going to be using it for a, they're going to be using it for a remote tissue adequacy workflow. Long-term, we just want to keep expanding the use cases of the platform. We, we think that in 10 years, we're going to be able to produce an image quality um, that you can do a primary diagnosis on this. And we recognize that that's a long road. Um, and so that's why we're kind of taking a measured approach. That's why we're starting off with the tissue adequacy. But but long term, um, we, we want to build a system that you can take a fresh piece of tissue, can do our staining process, can press one button, and you can produce the image that's going to be used for the primary diagnosis. Okay, that that sounds like a pretty exciting future, uh, David. This has been a real yeah. interesting conversation. I appreciate learning more about you, uh, learning more about what Instapath is doing, and, and like I said, this is this is exciting. So I look forward to the future of that. So, uh, David Tolman, thank you very much. Thank you, Dennis. It's a pleasure. Great big thanks to David Tolman. Here's a trailer from another episode that I think you'll enjoy, and then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. I took a job in the biobanking field. And so uh, there was a research technician position uh, that was posted for Tulane University. And I started as a biorepository technician. And that is really how I discovered pathologist assistant because 
I was having to consent patients and uh, get tissue and go to the pathology department to get like normal and tumor tissue. And that's where I discovered, you know, some of the PAs working in the gross room. And I was like, wow, this is this is a really interesting field. Like, I, I, I really enjoy this. How did I never know that this existed? And so that's kind of like where my um, my role in pathologist assistant came from. Okay, that's a that's a good point too. I mean, that's a problem because people don't hear about our field. You know, that needs to change. And that's the same with other lab careers as well. I mean, I've talked to a lot of people and, and a lot of them say, you know, I didn't hear about this field until I got into it or, you know, I accidentally happened upon it or someone happened to mention it to me. Yeah, it's crazy. And so um, it, it's really something that needs to change. I wish that we had more outreach programs in undergraduate and actually in high schools that we could, you know, go to high schools, go go to some of these uh, medical association groups and kind of like, you know, put out for our pr- profession what we wh- what we do. To hear more from Alexandra Giardina and her work in biobanking, check out episode 70. This is an exciting time to be in the field of pathology. I mean, there are lots of new technologies like the one that Instapath has created that are coming out now. So for me, these things are exciting and I appreciate the opportunity to get to talk about them. And I think two of the most important parts of this Lucy system that they've created are number one, the speed, and secondly, that it doesn't require creating a glass slide. So you can see how this could revolutionize a lot of areas of the field of pathology. And also, I appreciate David's comments about the current state of digital pathology and what he thinks the future of that will be. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything that we talked about today. Don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path, or you can just connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you to everyone who has been sharing the show with others. I really appreciate that. And I hope that continues. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.